Mud Stories, Episode 51. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. When your baby is struggling or suffering or your child's going through something, as a parent, you would just, you would take their place. You would do anything to make it better. And I couldn't do anything. It felt like everything was kind of broken. You know, my body and my baby and my connection to the people around me and the things that I loved. It kind of felt like I had her and then everything sort of shattered. I knew that there was one thing that would hold during all of it, and that was that God was who he said he was all the time. Hi, my name is Jackie Watkins, your host, and you're listening to Mud Stories, a podcast dedicated to bringing you inspiration in your muddiest moments, hope to make it through your mud, and encouragement for you to know that you are not alone. Hey friends, welcome to the Mud Stories podcast. I'm so glad you've joined me today and I hope you're having an amazing summer. I know my summer is full of activities and fun and the kids and I are actually on our way out to go to the free movies today. And so I hope wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you are seizing moments of summer relating and connecting with others in intentional ways, and experiencing joy even amidst what might be the mud that you're facing in your life. So today I have a fun guest. Her name is Kayla Amy, and she is releasing her very first book today entitled Anchored, Finding Hope in the Unexpected. And that is exactly what happened to her. Unexpected tragedy hit her life over four years ago when she delivered her first baby at 25 weeks. And what followed was a ton of mud that she faced. And I'm excited for you to hear what she learned as she walked through it. And in hindsight, what she can see as she looks back. And so one of the quotes from her book that I just love, which really represents the reason I even do this podcast at all, she writes, it is the story that we allow a creator to write in our suffering that gives us the greatest opportunity to know the depths of his love and in this way share that love with others. This is our privilege. This is our benediction. And I just love that. And it's exactly why I make this podcast for all of you each and every week so that you can see how God has worked in someone's story and how he has met them and brought some good out of something that was so hard. And I want you to have hope and believe today that he can do that very thing for you. And so as you listen to this episode, I hope you'll be encouraged. You should know Kayla and I were joined by this delightful bird that decided to sing its lovely morning song as we were talking. And so I hope that you will smile and think of it as one of God's extra gifts to us today as we hear that bird sing as we talk. But I don't want it to surprise you or bother you. I just want you to know ahead of time we have a bird that's joined us and a couple little puppy dog sounds too. So It's my prayer that today, no matter what you're going to be going through this week or next week or what you faced, that Kayla's words and her insight and her wisdom and her humor too would encourage you today. Enjoy. Hi, Kayla. Welcome to the Mud Stories podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. 
Yes, I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Well, I would love for people to get to know who you are. So if you don't mind, just give us a little update and synopsis on your family, where you live and what you do. Yeah, so I am uh, married to my husband, Jeff. We've been married for almost nine years, and we have a four-year-old daughter, Scarlett. Um, So she is our only. And we live in North Georgia. We live kind of out in the in the country a little bit. In the South. (laughs) In the South, yes. Yes. So being Southern is a big part of our lives as far as I will say y'all a lot in this interview. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, whenever I hang out with people who who use y'all or other kind of Southern terms, I tend to pick it up. I don't know what it is. It's a very great all-inclusive word. I think so. I really do. And it's, I don't know, it feels warm to me. It feels, you know, like home. Yeah. My husband was wondering why I was saying y'all for a while there. And it was because I had listened to a Southern person read me an audiobook. Oh, yeah. And so when you spend hours and hours listening to someone like that, I think I just picked it up and I didn't even realize it until he told me. Yes. A lot of our families in like um, Tennessee and whenever we go visit, my husband says, your accent is so strong here around your family. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Well, it's summertime. Do you have any crazy, interesting things you're doing this summer besides releasing a book? No, that's, um, that is like 99% of life right now. And then the other percent is um, teaching my little girl how to swim. That's consuming our summer. Oh my. I remember those years. You know, my youngest is seven, but um, we have a pool. And so when she was three-ish, I'd say three to four, she was the fifth one. So I had tried with the other ones, some group swimming lessons. And I never had very good success with like a group of three or four kids. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was the teaching level of the, you know, the competency of the teacher, or if it was just the dynamic of a group. I had such an amazing experience when I finally went ahead and splurged and got her a one-on-one lesson. It was like, I don't know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday for like three weeks or four weeks. It was amazing. Uh, what happened when when we went one-on-one? It was incredible. Yeah, that's good to know because mommy's teaching I don't think is very good. So <laughs> we're going to have to move to a professional. Oh, uh, well, you know, I think once you watch them once, it would be easy to reteach. I mean, maybe a swimming professional would disagree with me, but it was amazing. <laughs> they taught her to float on her but, you know, of course, get your face in, but blow bubbles in the water and float on your back and then flip over and flip back. It was really, really fun. So you're yeah, you're in for good like times. Progress. Yes, yes. You're still on letting go of mommy in the pool. Oh, so, well, I have to you encourage <laughs> you because the very first day my daughter cried. She refused to put her face in the water at all. It was like screaming ten- tantrum. It was a totally embarrassing mommy moment for sure. <laughs> you know, the lady I'm sure was looking at me like, you've got to be kidding me. This is your fifth child and you still haven't figured out how to teach a kid to follow directions yet. It was terrifying. But by the third or fourth session, she was like a fish. You're going to, you're going to be great. It's going to be fine. Great. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm so excited that you're here because you have written your very first book entitled Anchored, Finding Hope in the Unexpected. And I have to tell you, I loved your book. And um, although this is not a podcast about book reviews, this book is a memoir that tells 
a riveting story. And I think I loved it even more because I'm a labor and delivery nurse and your story has something to do with hospital time and labor and delivery nurses and NICU nurses. So I'd love it if you'd take us back and share with everybody a little bit of your journey of what you've written so beautifully about in this book and what happened to you um, several years ago. Okay. Yes. Thank you for the nice words. That's so great. So I, um, let's see, it's, it was so, so much. It's hard to know where to start, right? Yes. We'll start with the moment that you had an intuition. Okay. You no, know, you had an intuition sometimes. And I, I, I will say as a labor and delivery nurse, I, we all take great weight when a mom says, I just don't feel right. I just don't sense there's something right. Like sometimes I'll meet somebody and they'll say, well, I'm coming, having some pain over here. And I'm like, well, do you have a headache? Do you have this? You know, and they're like, well, a week ago I had a headache. And yesterday, I'm like, no, today, do you have a headache? (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to focus them down. But when they say, you know, I'm not sure. I just don't feel like something's right. We all have learned to pay great attention to that. That statement doesn't sit lightly with us. So that amazed me as part of your story where it begins. Yeah, it was a big lesson for me in learning to trust that small voice, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was pregnant after um, four and a half years of trying. <laughs> so we were so excited to be pregnant. And I was um, 24 weeks along. We'd had our gender ultrasound pretty recently before that, and everything looked great. Um, And I just felt like something was wrong that day. Um, It was just a random Wednesday, and I, you know, nothing was really different. Um, I just had a feeling. So we went to the doctor, and I told him that same thing. I don't really know. I just have a feeling. Um, Please check me just for my peace of mind. And it turned out that I was in active labor. So they sent me straight to the hospital to try to stop labor. I didn't know that I was in labor because I wasn't having contractions that I could feel. I was having them. I just couldn't feel them. Um, And I was dilated. So um, when we got to the hospital, they managed to stop labor for a few days. But the day that I hit 25 weeks, I went into full-blown labor again. And then I had an emergency C-section to deliver my daughter. And how many weeks was she when she was born? So she was exactly 25. We, we, we managed to hang out in the hospital till we hit 25 weeks. 25 and zero, we call it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> 25, zero. You know all about that, right? Yes. So, yes. And, um, and that began a whirlwind of change that you had totally not expected. I think you described it as tragedy marked by unexpectedness. Yes. Yes. It was... Um, It was nothing like what I pictured my delivery to be like, for one thing, but it was also nothing like what you ever imagined seeing uh, your child or your baby like, because she only weighed one pound and eight and a half ounces. Mm. So she didn't really look like a baby. She still was very, very um, undeveloped. So it was, it was all very unexpected, you know, um, the way it happened and then the way, the way it looked, it wasn't like anything you could really imagine. Um, and then we embarked on a NICU stay that is a really unfamiliar environment, you know, for parents. Um, so it was really learning how to navigate motherhood in a whole different way, right from the get go, right from the get go. And a lot of very scary things ahead 
to see and to experience. Mm-hmm. Yes, the NICU is it's, it's almost like a whole different world. Everything is, is um, very foreign to you, you know, and it seems like it's very fast-paced and slow at the same time. So we spent um, 156 days in the NICU with Scarlett, so just shy of six months. Wow. You know what I found incredible about, I mean, there's so much more that you've written about, but oftentimes when I have a patient like you, and, you know, for us, it's a it's an emergent situation, you know, we're, we're trying so hard to stop everything from happening. And yet in our gut, we know this isn't looking good. The chances right. are that this baby's going to be born and it's very realistic that it might not survive. And it's so hard to know that information and take care of a patient because you, they hang on your every word. And um, it's just heart wrenching to have to deliver information that's going to change someone's world. Like this changed your world. Yet the delivery and the emergency C-section and all of that is so um, technical for us. And it's um, us trying to deliver the most, um, the most effective care and yet for you, it's just such a life-changing whirlwind. And so I loved reading your story because it brought me back to the perspective of a patient and what a patient might need me to say to her in those moments of whirlwind, in the middle of having a C-section, little gestures like holding someone's hand and reassuring them that their baby looking like Petrie from Land Before Time <laughs> is is actually what we expect. It's not abnormal. It's like, this is what a 25-weeker looks like. Right. And um, better, uh, to our best ability, preparing a patient for that. And um, so I'm wondering, as you walked through those days, I mean, you wrote about them so poignantly, you know, day after day and that isolation and all of that. Can you talk with us a little bit about those feelings of failure you felt, how your body had failed you, how your being able to be there in normal motherhood had felt like a failure, even though from our perspective as caregivers, we don't think you failed at all. But your perspective was so different. Yes, I think part of that is fueled by, you know, the rush of postpartum hormones that you have when you deliver a baby. So, you know, everything's a little heightened anyways, whatever emotion you're feeling. And my overall emotion felt like, like that, like I couldn't carry her to safety, mm-hmm. you know, like you have one job. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I, I felt that all the time. Um, every time I looked at her, it was kind of a reminder of the fact that her suffering was because she was outside of my womb. And I felt responsible for that, even though I didn't do anything to cause it. Um, and I also felt very much within my faith, like I was having a hard time connecting to having hope. And that felt like a failure too. It felt mm. like it felt like everything was kind of broken, you know, my body and my baby and my connection to the people around me and the things that I loved. It kind of felt like I had her and then everything sort of shattered. So I couldn't um, I couldn't touch her really when, when babies are born that little you know, you can't, you can't stroke them. You can't hold them. Um, she could hold my finger, but I couldn't, you know, like stroke her, caress her, um, to calm her or soothe her at all. Um, just because that's what was best for her. And I wasn't able to hold her till she was a month old. And so for me, I felt like I couldn't even mother. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like I was just kind of 
taking up space. And that was a really hard place to be because all I wanted to do was take care of her. Like you were an outsider looking Mm -hmm. in, not invited in a sense. Right, right. So hard. So, And I don't think that it was um, anyone that really made me feel that way. I think it was just, you know, your instinct sort of kicks in to take care and to nurture. Mm -hmm. um, And then you're placed in an environment where nurture comes second to keeping your baby alive medically. And so there just weren't opportunities for that. And so it felt like I was just unnecessary, um, which was really difficult because when your baby is struggling or suffering or your child's going through something as a parent, you would just, you would take their place. You would do anything to make it better. And I couldn't do anything. Yeah, nothing at all. I know, so hard. Well, Kayla, even though you felt like you couldn't do anything, I'm wondering, in your experience in the NICU, could you take us in and give us some inside glimpses of some things that you experienced there? I know there were other parents nearby that were coming and going. Six months is a long time to be there, or a hundred and, what did you say, 56 days, something like that. And I know there was a time when you got really familiar with the medical jargon. You learned how to become an advocate for your daughter. Um, Tell us a little bit about what it's like to be walking through this experience of really being inside an NICU, which for those people who might not know, neonatal intensive care unit, we call it NICU or NICU. Being in that environment, what are some things that you faced that were unique that would help us get a glimpse of what your journey was like? I think the thing that surprised me was how isolating that experience is. Um, you're very alone, even though you're in the midst of a lot of other people. Everyone is, I think, kind of, you know, other parents are very focused on their baby, rightly. Right. And the nurses are all very busy keeping all the babies healthy. And so let's see. The thing I think that was my most vivid memory was there were there were a couple of times where Scarlett coded. So And tell everybody what that means. So basically, uh, her heart rate stops dropping and she quits breathing. And so she has to be resuscitated. Um, So watching your child be resuscitated is a very, very scary sight. Mm -hmm. Um, It's pretty pretty traumatic, actually. And we were in two different NICUs. Um, We transferred to a large hospital where they uh, performed heart surgery on Mm -hmm. her. And so at that hospital... We were in a big open room, so you didn't have any privacy. There weren't even privacy curtains. You were just, you know, uh, an incubator next to an incubator right. next to an incubator. So we were in this big open bay with tons of other sick babies. And so you're constantly getting this input of information that is really sad. You know, babies around us would code or pass. And so you're having all of these emotions where you're you're feeling for these other families and you're hoping it's not your baby when you hear the alarm start going. Mm -hmm. So taking that in day after day when you're trying to be really strong, it's just very emotionally draining. Um, I don't think I've ever experienced anything that made me have the kind of feelings that did. I think it's really a calling to be someone who works in that environment to to be you have to think you have to be called to be a healer you know to work with those babies because as a parent it was so difficult not only to see my own daughter suffer but to see such a widespread 
room full of babies that were all hurting. Mm -hmm. So sick. Yeah. Well, undoubtedly, being born at 25 weeks, she would have been in the most critical bay. Yes. Um, They kind of group them, don't they? You know, (laughs) you kind of get to graduate to the next bay or the next Next one. one, Yes. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, we called it the Bat Cave uh, because they had to keep it very dark in there. So they keep the rooms, like all the lights off and, you know, the isolates are covered with heavy quilts and we mm-hmm. try not to make any noise to keep it very quiet to sort of simulate the room. So that's what we called it. We called it our bat cave <laughs> and we were in there for a very long time. Like I probably should have some sort of cape or something to graduate from that. But um, I think for me, that was one of the most vivid things that I took away was what it's like to know who you are before and after watching your baby need to be resuscitated. You know, uh, you make a lot of choices in that moment and without really even knowing that you're making those choices about what you believe. Well, let's talk about that because you were a person of faith before this happened. You love God and how did this experience challenge your faith? I feel like there's so much in the book that I would love to talk to you about. It's like impossible to fit into a little (laughs) tiny conversation. But I'm wondering, growing up in an environment of faith, how this sort of suffering, this unexpected tragedy, the feelings of failure and all the uncertainty and just the path of what you were given changed you from the inside out? You know, when when we first started... Um, I felt, I felt very much like, why did this happen to us? You know, and not even why did it happen to me, but why did it happen to my baby? Because she's so innocent, you know? So that was a really big question that followed me for a long time. When I would try to pray for comfort or peace, I just kept being plagued by that instead, you know, but why God, you know, why is this, why is this the story? for her. And so, and by the way, that happens all throughout motherhood. I will say I have a a 19 year old and even still, it's really hard to watch them even when they begin making their own choices. And you wonder, Oh Lord, I have to let you write their story. And so you just got to start at the very, very beginning. Right. Very very early. (laughs) Broke you in. Yes. (laughs) And then there was, um, There was a moment early on when I was looking at her and she was so small that her whole entire arm was smaller than my index finger and she didn't have eyelids that were open. Her eyelids were still fused shut and she didn't have um, full ears yet. She just sort of had holes, you know, because she wasn't finished forming when I gave birth to her. And I looked at her and I thought, but she still to me looks fearfully and wonderfully made. Hmm. She still looks like life to me. So there were, in the middle of my questioning, like, why is this happening? There were so many things about looking on her as, you know, she struggled to live and she fought really hard to live. You know, she was such a little fighter that made me feel that comfort of there was a reason for this creation, you know. Absolutely. So that was very hope-giving for me. And then... I think the next big part of that was the first time that she coded and not knowing, you know, they took me out of the room. Um, so I, I could see through the glass, everybody working on her, but I couldn't be there with her. Right. 
And I didn't know when they took me back in if she was still going to be alive or not. Um, I waited a very long time to find out. It took them a very long time to get her stable. Hmm. And that really shifted my faith because that was the moment where I just felt like if I was ever going to just quit believing, this would be it. And people would understand that, mm-hmm. you know, it would be, it would be easy to explain why I might've given up hope then. Um, but I felt very, very strongly right then this very intangible sense of peace not that I felt peaceful or happy about the outcome. You know, I knew if I went back in there and they told me she hadn't made it, I was going to be destroyed. And I would still be angry at God and I would still question why. Mm-hmm. But I felt very strongly like I could feel in that moment that everything else was falling apart and God was constant. It was the only constant. It was the only thing that wasn't about to change. And so it was wasn't for me really even a matter of choosing it. It just was there. It's what held for me when everything else was kind of wreckage, you know. And so coming out on the other side of it, that changed my faith going forward. Because while I still had a lot of questions, and I was still really dealing with a lot of emotions about what had happened and what the situation was, I knew that there was one thing that would hold during all of it. And that was that God was who he said he was all the time. And that for me became kind of what I cling, you know, was clinging to. How did you most practically see God show up? I think I saw it in hindsight. Mm. I don't think I really saw it in like a, there was no big miraculous Mm -hmm. healing. You know, there was nothing that I could point to and be like, this is when God showed up for me. This is when it was. But when I look back over the entirety of what happened and my heart change, I could see so many things. I could see the way I, who would not normally go to my doctor because I would think, oh, I don't, I don't want them to think I'm being overreacting, you know, knew that I should go, that I felt very led to go get help, which Mm -hmm. is what saved her. Um, I could see it in the way that people would share our story. They would share her story and then um, with someone and someone else. And I think there's a point in the book where I talk about how uh, we found out several months into our NICU stay that Scarlett was having another problem with her heart. And when the cardiologist came to visit us, she asked me my name and she asked me about Scarlett. And then she asked me if I had a blog and if I knew a friend who was in Minnesota. Um, (laughs) And I live in Georgia, you know. Yes. And I was like, yes, how do you know her? And she said, I don't know her, but I read her blog. And she wrote about your daughter. And I've been praying for her since she was born. (sighs) Um, Amazing. So I could see as we went along little, little places where I thought, you know, I was so consumed with my daughter and what was going on with her at the time that maybe I couldn't pick things out. But when I look back over all of it, there was always something Mm -hmm. moving, you know, there was always something holding me. Tell everybody who's listening about the Cardinal. So I loved that. I can't wait for my mom to read this part because when I was young, when I was 10, my grandfather passed away, um, which was a very integral moment in your family, Mm -hmm. you know. And so 
my mom had been just dealing with a lot of the stuff surrounding that. And she told us later that she had been sitting on the front porch of my grandparents' house and just praying like, God, I need a sign. I just need you to, I just need to know that, you know, you're here. I just, I need a sign. And that a cardinal, a bright red cardinal flew down and sat right next to her on the front porch steps. And so from then on, there would be times where she would tell us she just felt like she needed some sort of encouragement and she would see a cardinal. And I just indulged her. I really didn't think <laughs> that that was any sort of divine intervention, you know, but we would, I bought her a little cardinal ornament for the Christmas tree mm-hmm. and things like that because I knew it brought her some measure of comfort, even if I didn't really believe it. Right. You're like, whatever, we'll just go with this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... I had been asking God a lot in my prayers when Scarlett was in the hospital to give me some sort of sign. I felt like I had read stories of other people who had gone through tragic events and then God gave them some very specific direction, you know, and I was like, Lord, I just, I don't even need the direction. I could just use a compass, like (laughs) something. So I, I got a call in the middle of the night to come to the hospital where they told me, you need to come to the hospital right now because Scarlett is not doing well. We don't know how long she's going to make it. Mm. Um, and so on that particular drive, I was trying to get there as fast as I could safely. Yes. And I know I kept noticing on my drive there, I kept noticing a cardinal flying. It flew all the way to the hospital from my house. I saw it the entire drive. And um, I didn't really even have time to dwell on that because I was trying so hard to get to her. Um, and by the time I got there, they had gotten her stable and they let me hold her. So they sat me uh, in the hospital chair and positioned her on me. And the thing about our hospital is that our NICU faced a parking garage and the labor and delivery doors. So, mm. so we didn't have the prettiest view. But um, I could see clearly from my chair, I could see sitting in front of my car on the ledge of the parking garage was a cardinal. And I just thought, that's such a personal thing to my family. It's such a symbol of hope to my family specifically. And it's red. And my daughter is named Scarlet. And my very best friend in the whole world, her favorite Bible verse that she liked to quote to me all the time was the one about how you see the God, he takes care of the birds of the air. How much more does he love you? And is he going to take care of you? And it, it brought that to mind seeing it there. And it was such a comfort to me. And just one of those small things that for me reminded me that I was not alone. You know, I didn't maybe like my story, but I wasn't alone in it. And then didn't a cardinal show up at the end later too? Yes. (laughs) So now it's like my theme, right? So I didn't see another one the whole time we were in the hospital. It wasn't like all of a sudden it was like birds or something. (laughs) But I went to the beach to write my last portion of the book. And that is when I was writing about the time that Scarlett had flatlined. I saved that for very last to write about, even though it doesn't come last in the book, because I knew that it was going to be the hardest thing for me to write. And so I was sitting out on the balcony and I was just struggling with how I wanted to tell the story. And um, I felt like, you know, this is a very personal story to me, but we did get a happy ending. Scarlett's healthy and happy and she made it. And there's a lot of stories in the world that are really difficult. And I thought maybe, does this one even make a difference? You know, um, 
And I thought about how all I wanted when I was going through it was to hear from other people who had been through something similar. And I wanted them to give me some sort of hope. So I started to pray and I asked God that he would take what I was doing as an offering and that he would multiply it. And that was the very specific prayer. Just will you please take this and will you please multiply it beyond anything that I could do so that it is helpful, you know, and leads people to you for hope when they need it. And when I finished, I sat up to start the chapter. There were two cardinals sitting on the branch outside of my beach house. I was like, are cardinals even beach birds? <laughs> I feel like there have been many, uh, what are these birds that come and like steal your food at the beach? There were many of those. <laughs> but, um, and I just felt very much like I can get through it. I can write this next chapter and God is going to let it be what it needs to be. So, I loved that so very much because our God is a God of details and he's a God who wants to reveal himself to us. And I think our prayer, if we can just say, you know, God, it's my deep desire to see you show up. Can you help open my eyes to see you wherever you are? And I think he's faithful to do it. You know, as we ask that small, humble prayer, just I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to know that you're here. He loves us so deeply. Yes. And the thing I think that I really want, my greatest desire for the book too, is that people would be able to see that I didn't do faith well. I was mad at God. I was really mad. And I was really questioning why everything was happening. And I was holding on to just a sliver of my faith during some of those parts of the story. And he still anyway, showed me love. I didn't have to earn it. I didn't have to go around saying things like, it's okay. God's got this. I know he's going to show up when I was feeling the crisis of faith. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, he loved me through all of those things. I didn't have to do anything. I just had to rest in him. And that felt like such a blessing and such a reinforcement of what faith is. Well, and it's something you learned about God going through suffering. You know, I love how you talk about you didn't want this story for yourself. You you didn't want this story for your daughter. It was incredible suffering, um, immense brokenness, just unexpected tragedy that was a long time to walk through. I mean, it wasn't just the 156 days of an NICU, which, by the way, is so significant. We don't keep people in the hospital if there's not a reason. You know what I mean? Like that is a long time to justifiably need to be in the hospital. That just is a reflection of her, you know, need for care and just how far she came. But the suffering and the brokenness, I think for many listening, you know, we all have our suffering, whether it's given to us or whether we participate in a decision that causes suffering or brokenness in our lives. But I I reflect on the part where you wrote about just becoming so angry. I mean, I I sensed you did a lot of wrestling with God through suffering, and I think a lot of us do that. Most of us do. And it's a process of learning about God, about learning how to be broken, about learning how when you threw that vase and it shattered and you saw the broken shards reflecting light, you know, um, a few quotes that I loved. I just want to read some to you. You say, I could lay out my heart at its most vulnerable 
and learn to rest in the knowledge that I was loved by God regardless of my reaction. And when I reached the place of desolation, God didn't show up. He was already there. Mm. And I love how, you know, maybe before Scarlett was born, you struggled with infertility. You might have struggled with some things through college. But this was a huge, significant suffering episode in your life that really slayed you to a point of needing God in a way you maybe hadn't needed him before and the beauty of finding him in a way you never would have found him otherwise. Yes. Um, Talk a little bit about that to that person out there listening who's suffering, because I think they're in a really dark place right now and they can't see that there's any light that's going to come from it. And yet you have an analogy in the book about film and about how the way film is exposed. You say, and if you want to see what the film holds, you have to unravel it in the darkness. The image exists captured in the blackness long before it can be seen. But the truth always makes itself known, coming clear as the light meets the dark. Can you talk about that to that hurting person out there who needs some hope today? Yes. Um, You know, I read something by Erica Morrison really recently where she said, you know, this is suffering, what's happening to us right now, because they've been through a very tragic event. And she said, we're going to lean into the suffering and let God show us who he is, because he is the constant. So just like, you know, when you take the picture, the picture's already there. You know, it's, it doesn't change all that changes. The only thing that changes is seeing it in the light, the difference between seeing it in the darkness and seeing it in the light. And that's on our end, you know, how, how we're going to choose to see it. And it's developed in the dark. It gets stronger. Yes. It comes clear that way. And I think that for me, you know, it did continue a very long time after, you know, like the intensity of the trauma happened in the hospital. But four years on, my husband and I were still working through things in our marriage from how hard that time was on us, Yes, which is difficult. You know, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to be dealing with. And not only relationally, but financially too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. She was a very expensive baby. And, um, what gets me through those times now sometimes is, is remembering what God has done for me Mm. Um, and remembering what God has done for others, you know, seeing, seeing that through history, when you're reading about the stories of other people, you know, suffering is sort of our shared human condition. Everybody has something and you can, you can listen, you can really listen and you can see the way God has worked in people's hearts And I would say I felt very strongly about encouraging people to examine their brokenness, you know, to not feel like they had to be numb to it or or shove it away or pretend it didn't exist because they felt like that was not a good way to be faithful. But in in the Bible, um, I think I talk about this in the book a little, my favorite story about Jesus is when he is right before the cross, he is telling God, I am so full of sorrow that I have to do this. You know, this is such a hard thing. Um, Even Jesus felt like this is so hard. This is so hard. Please make me have a different story. You know, so I, I find so much 
peace there. And yet he surrendered to God's will. If if it's your will, right? If it's your will for me to suffer, then I will go to the then cross. I will do it. That's mm-hmm. right. And so just, you know, even if it's that one small thing you can hold on to, mm-hmm. um, it's helpful to have a touchstone of knowing that you're not alone in this from, from all of us, you know, every single person who experiences some sort of personal suffering to Jesus himself, you know, what he did binds us all in that and frees us from that. And he understands our suffering because he has suffered. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it, it, for me, I think maybe helped me make even more of a connection of the humanity of Jesus. Yes. I love too, that you talked about learning to give thanks remembering what God has done and learning to give thanks. I think our focus can bring such weight to our suffering, learning to look for what we do have instead of wish for what we don't have. And I, I love that you wrote about that as well. And, and that's why I'm so passionate about this podcast and sharing people's stories, because I think it is not only in remembering what God's done in our lives and learning to give thanks for what we do have, but also hearing where others have been and how God has met them there gives us hope that he's going to meet us too, no matter what we're in. Yes. So one of the things that was really helpful to me was Ann Voskamp's book, 1000 Gifts. Yes. Um, because, you know, she talked a lot about gratitude and I struggled with feeling like I can't be grateful for this situation. Nobody would be grateful for this. But I did learn that what I could be was grateful still in my situation I was still very grateful that I had the time to be Scarlett's mom. I didn't know how long it might last, but I was so grateful to get to be her mother. And so focusing on that and and giving myself something tangible to hold on to um, was really a very big turning point for me. Yeah. And for you to come to realize that you would do it over just to have the privilege of loving her. Yes. I thought that was so beautiful because so many people wouldn't want to go through their suffering again. And yet they'll say, I wouldn't really change it because of what I've learned, because of what I've come to know about God and about those who I love. So I want to talk a little bit about your writing because you journaled and wrote on your blog in real time through this entire experience while you're in the NICU and beyond. And you describe the healing that comes from community and how you learned so much that we need each other. And I love this quote from your book. You say, sometimes community isn't a grand gesture. Sometimes community is in the simple act of filling an empty seat. Can you talk to us about your experience with community and maybe that Spanish-speaking mom that you sat next to that one day? Yeah, I had spent most of my formative years being slightly awkward and I, <laughs> um, I would not say so much that I was a girl who had tons of friends, you know, like a good small group of friends, but um, nothing like I had never felt like, oh, I just have tons of community. And around the time that that happened, we had recently moved, we hadn't found a new church home. So we were feeling, I was feeling really lonely. I already had the isolation of the NICU and I felt a little bit lonely in my life in general. And so I think that for me, I really learned that stepping out of my own isolation made a big difference to my heart. So we were 
um, in the NICU that had the big bay and the mom next to us, her baby needed surgery. And even though I was saying, you know, like, oh, I never felt like I had a ton of friends when my baby had surgery, that waiting room was full of my family and my friends that came to just sit with me during it, just to sit with us, even though they couldn't do anything. And that did so much just having them there. And so it was her baby was having surgery that day. And I noticed she didn't have, she didn't have anybody, um, which was the case for a lot of people at our NICU. And so seeing that, I just, I wanted to reach out to her. I wanted to just sit with her, you know, so I went over and she didn't speak any English. And I once uh, lived in Guatemala for a short amount of time, but I don't speak any Spanish. (laughs) I'm not very good at languages. So I even took Spanish classes before I went to help me, um, but I'm just not good at languages and it didn't work. So I knew going in, I knew that there were no words that I could offer her, like literally. Mm -hmm. Um, And also just being a parent of a child who is suffering, there's not much you can say that's helpful. So I thought I can just maybe at least sit with her. Um, So I did. I just sat there and I held her hand. You know, that was it. It wasn't anything big. I just didn't want her to be alone. And so the next day, um, she had the hospital translator. They brought me a little gift, a little stuffed dog. She had the hospital translator tell me that she wanted to give me a gift because she was praying for us too. And that was such a moment for me, you know, that we didn't, we didn't really have to, to talk about it. We just had community in one another. And I think that is how God wants us to love one another, just to show up for each other. And you did that simple act of just filling that empty seat. Just sitting with her. Yeah. yeah. And then when I was writing, this is a funny story. When I was writing the book um, after the NICU, I had packed everything that they sent home with us. They gave us all these, you know, random little things from our stay. They put it all in a big box and sent it home. Yes. And I put that on a shelf because I didn't want anything <laughs> to do with it anymore. And while I was writing the book, I had pulled it out and I had sorted through everything so that I could be very much just immersed, you know, in telling the story correctly. And one day while I was writing, I went to get a drink of water. And when I came back, Scarlett had taken that tiny little dog out of that box and sat it on my keyboard of my laptop while I was in the middle of writing the chapter about Mm. community. And I hadn't planned on telling that story in the book until I saw that. And then I thought... I feel like I, I want to share how that impacted me. Not that I did anything for her, but what she showed me was that it was so much. Sorry. It's okay. It's powerful. Um, that it was, it wasn't feeling for, for her. I mean, I'm sure it, I'm sure it brought her some comfort to have someone with her, but it was feeling for me to do it. And it was such a small thing. Mm-hmm. So, And yet not to underestimate our small acts of love and kindness. They can be very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It made such a big difference. I mean, you know, and now we're talking about it. I didn't even think about it at the time. Um, and so, and then I also, I did, I wrote a lot while she was in the hospital mostly because I just wanted to update everyone. I journaled every day to keep everyone updated because it was too hard to talk on the phone and answer questions and have to say bad news over and over again. Right. So putting it in one spot was easier for me. So you already had a blog prior to Scarlett being born. I did. Yes. I had been writing about 
you know, just life and a little bit of my frustration at not getting pregnant (laughs) and chronicling our pregnancies. Yeah. So, um, I didn't really expect people to start sharing the story. I was just trying to keep our family updated, but it it was so cathartic for me to just lay it all out. Um, There wasn't many other people to really express all my feelings to at the time because I was spending 24 hours a day at the hospital. And my husband, he still had to go to work and our hospital was an hour and a half away. So we weren't even, we weren't even together. You know, I didn't. So hard process with him every Mm -hmm. night. I was just staying in this little room alone. And so, um, so writing about it for me was the only way to process my feelings. I didn't really think, actually, I felt very vulnerable sharing that much of my heart, you know? Yes. Um, But I think that's what was so connecting for people. And I didn't expect that at all. But it turned out to be the thing that made people, I think, connect to the story and want to share it and want to be involved. And then suddenly people were offering to donate blood for her, you know, and amazing. It just it went from being just us in this tiny hospital room, you know, by myself to being, you know, connected to all these other people who cared. And that was really another view of community for me that these people were showing up for us and I guess interceding for me when I was alone. Absolutely. And it's a huge lesson that vulnerability starts a process that leads to connection, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and sometimes if we want connection, we have to be willing to go first and that gives others permission to tell their story too. Because even though they might not have been able to identify with having had a child in the NICU or even having been through any of your life suffering experiences at all, I think there's some undercurrent similarities of suffering like you described. It's a human condition. And so when someone goes first and shares their story and and entrusts us with their heart, it's magnetizing and it makes us see our own suffering in their suffering and helps us translate what they're learning into what we could learn too. Yes. And I hope that, you know, it's, it's a way for people to kind of see too, like, okay, like sometimes you just think if they could do it, I can do it. You know, like they made it through and that gives me the encouragement to make it through. Cause let me tell you, I'm not a person who I thought could make it through. Like I have a slight <laughs> panic attack every time I have to turn left. I just, you know, don't enjoy turning left. Right hand turns, fine. Left hand turns, no. So you pick the route where you only have to make all these rights? Absolutely. If that is an option to me, that is what I'm doing. Oh, that's So I felt like, you know, people would sometimes be like, oh, God won't give you more than you can handle. And I was thinking, I can't handle turning left. How am I supposed to handle having a very critically ill baby? But we can. We can handle it when we're not alone with other people and with God, you know, we can handle it. We can handle it. And he's there. And it's in sharing our stories that others are given hope. And that, that's why I'm so thankful you said yes. And you joined us today, because I think you have a lot of insight and wisdom in walking through this experience to highlight God's goodness and his grace in meeting you where he has and, and in what he continues to do um, in your lives. How is Scarlett doing? So she's doing so wonderfully well. Really, she has out outperformed any of the statistics that they originally had given us for her. Um, 
so we have a few lingering prematurity issues. Um, for me, they feel very minor in comparison to what they had told us we might be facing. Um, but overall, she's so happy and healthy, and she's such a just joy in my life. She is such a great joy to me. So, I love it. And on your website, I know we can see some video. You have videos with her, and she's just darling. Love. She's, she's I love so that. funny. She is funny. She has an opinion of her own, right? You've described her as kind of a spitfire. Yes, that is. Yes, she is. She is feisty. We like to call her future Tina Fey. Um, she's. Oh, that is funny. She's a little bossy pants. Bossy so. pants. Love it. Yeah. Well, in closing, Kayla, I'm wondering if you have any advice you could give either to someone suffering today or more than that, someone who's listening who knows a friend who's suffering. Because I know people can say some crazy things, and yet sometimes saying something is better than saying nothing at all. So if you could give any encouragement to us in that regard and then um, any resources that you might suggest for walking through suffering. Um, I would say, you know, as far as things to help your friends, the best thing someone said to me was, I'm so sorry that this is happening to you and I love you. And then they, some of my friends just did things to help that were very tangible, like dropping meals off on my porch where I didn't have to entertain or talk about what was going on, but they still took care of us. And that was really, really lovely of them. But for other people, I would just say accepting the help asking for it if you need it and accepting it, even if that just means you need to talk to someone, um, you know, and you need to ask someone to pray with you. Sometimes we just feel like we should do it on our own, but we weren't meant to do things on our own. We were meant to be in community with other people. And when we're going through something and people offer to help us, sometimes, you know, they might be a little misguided in their approach because they don't know how to be the most helpful, but their hearts are genuine and they want to help. And it blesses both parties to let that happen. It blessed me to let my friends help me and it blessed my friends to be able to do it. And sometimes they'll offer to help, but they don't know what to do. So don't you think if you're suffering, it's really okay to just have a small list or some direction of, it would really help me today if you would go you know, stock my freezer or you would go, you know, run this errand to the mailbox for me or whatever it is. Oh, those are silly examples. But sometimes, you know, people say, Oh, well, let me know if you need anything. And then you think, okay, well, that's really sweet. They said that, but I don't even really know what I need. Yes. Or I don't feel comfortable calling and actually asking for it. So yeah, I think it's really great to have kind of a list, even if it's just like, could you please make these three phone calls for me? Or could you please sit with me? Um, Or could you sit here while I run get a drink if they're in the hospital or whatever, you know, Um, even if it's small things or could you could you just pray with me? And I also think it's great to always offer choices to people, Mm -hmm. you know, like now I kind of know having been on the other side. So when I have friends who are in need, sometimes I'll ask them, "Okay, this week, can I do can I bring you a meal or could I pick your kids up or what would be helpful for you? Can I send you know, emails for oh, you. Oh, that's so good. You give them a choice. Like I, I would love to help you. Could I do this, this or this? Yes. Because I know sometimes, you know, my friends actually, they did the same thing. They're like, we can go do your laundry. And I was like, oh my gosh, that would be so helpful, <laughs> but I would be so mortified for anyone to do my laundry. <laughs> so, you know, so offering choices, um, I think is a really good actionable thing that you can do. That's really good. I like that one. 
I um, really and I loved that. A Thousand Gifts by Ann Voskamp. I thought it was a great read um, in the middle of what I was going through. My friends kept asking me to read it, and I was like, no, I don't want to live fully right now. I'm very <laughs> sad. I don't want to live fully right where I am. Yeah. 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 I don't want to be where I am. So right. I'm just ready to be out of that place. But um, But it really helped me to be able to read her words and see that a, I wasn't alone. Other people have been through bad things. That's right. Um, and B, being able to look at Scarlett and start counting my gratefulness in those moments, you know, let me focus on things outside of my own pain. So even though I yes. still hurt, it moved me, you know, it sort of, it diverted the tension a little bit to where I could breathe. Again. Yes. I can't um, champion that book enough. My copy is raggedy and highlighted with post-it notes everywhere. And I think I've counted a thousand gifts several thousand times. <laughs> and each time I underestimate the power of taking my actual physical pen and writing a number and a list each each day. And I don't know. I don't know why my silly mind minimizes it each time. I'm like, oh, yeah, I've done that. I've counted a thousand gifts. And, and yet then I, okay, I'm going to do it again. And then it transforms my day every time. And I don't know why I am such a doubter and a forgetter about it. But Anne talks about how when we pick up our pen, we give thanks and fight for joy. Because when we give thanks, it brings joy and Eucharisteo precedes the miracle and all of that that she writes about. But there is power. And so, I, you know, we call ourselves joy fighters, you know, and uh, wielding our pen to, to get joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. So... Very powerful. I can't agree with you more about Anne's words. Yeah, I think at one point when we were in the darkest times, I was literally counting, like writing down thank you for single heartbeats that my daughter had yep. because she kept missing them. So every time, you know, she would go without a couple and then they'd, you know, start, you know, bagging our compressions and, yes. um, and I would start counting the heartbeats. And so sometimes now when things are very hard, mm-hmm. I start thinking, I can count heartbeats. We still have heartbeats. You we know? still have and, heartbeats. Um, that's right. And that's really trans- been transformative for me in my life. Transformative indeed. Well, Kayla, what a joy to talk to you today. I'm so thankful. I loved your book. I loved your story. Can you tell everyone where they can find you online and how they can track down your book? Which yes. releases this week, by the way. Yes, it's Yay. so exciting. <laughs> I think I'm in a place, too, where I just, speaking of gratitude, feel so grateful that I was able to take what was our very worst moments and just bind it up into a book that is full of hope and joy. And um, so that, for me, on top of, you know, wanting to write a book, like getting to write this story has, has been very redemptive for me. So you can find me. Um, I write my blog at KaylaAmy.com. And then um, the book is available actually at all major retailers. You can find it online at Amazon or Barnes Noble. Lifeway stores are carrying it. And, you know, um, I have some links on my website. <laughs> okay, to awesome. I'm a little proud about it. <laughs> well, I will link to all of that and to your book, of course. And um, we look forward to following you and just what God has in your journey ahead, not only in your writing, but in the lessons you're learning from Sweet Scarlet and marriage and just your walk with God in general. So thank you so much for being willing to share with the world this story and to 
mark it in a way as a marker of God's faithfulness and his goodness, even in suffering, and how he can take something that is muddy and yucky and dark and bring beauty from it every single time. He is so, so good. I just can't get over it. Yes, I'm, I'm so honored for the opportunity to share it. Thank you. You're so welcome. Well, I hope you have an amazing summer day, Miss Kayla, yes. and blessings as you uh, spread the word about your book. Yes, thank you. And a big, big hug to Sweet Scarlet. Yes, yes, a big messy one. I think we're about to start with some ice cream and some sidewalk chalk. So awesome. You awesome. Know? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, well, you have an amazing, amazing week. Okay. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. Bye bye. Well, that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed all that Kayla Amy shared. And if you would like the podcast notes from this episode, all you have to do is text the words episode 51 with no spaces to 33444. And when you receive a text back, all you have to do is send just your email and those show notes will be emailed right to you. And so I hope that blesses you. Also, if you don't mind sharing this podcast with a friend, I would be so thankful. This is how we can get others to really understand and know about these mud stories. And if you happen to be in iTunes, I would so appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast. That way, each and every episode would be available to you and you'll be notified of it as soon as I release each episode. And if you have time to send or write a rating or review on iTunes, that would help more people find our show as well. And so I hope you'll do that. You can get a free audiobook today by going to mudstoriesbook.com. You can also get the app to this podcast for free, which also would notify you to when the shows are released. And of course, as usual, all the show notes and everything mentioned in this episode, including links to Ann Voskamp's book, 1000 Gifts, and to Kayla Amy's new book that she's releasing today entitled Anchored, also, I have the book trailer there, the video that you could watch, and I think Kayla has some amazing giveaways happening this week, so check her out, and all those links are there for you, and you can find that at JackieWatkins.com forward slash episode 51. I hope you have an amazing week. I wish I could chat with each and every one of you. I enjoyed talking with some of you via email this week and just hearing about your mud and your needs and how I can better serve you. If there is a podcast topic or a podcast guest that you want to hear or something that you're struggling with, I would love to hear from you. You can leave me a voicemail message on my blog. You can send me an email, Jackie at JackieWatkins.com. You can send me a message on Facebook, Twitter, whatever way you want to reach me. I would love to hear from you. Any questions you have, concerns you have, or ideas you have, I am here to serve you and want to bring you the stories that encourage you most. And so today, no matter what you've been facing, no matter where you've been or what lies ahead, may you find today a grateful song to sing. I'm with you, friend, and I'm sending so much love. Have a beautiful day. I never knew I feels a press upon my mind I feel ashamed me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the plane and I never will find a way out and then I feel you next to me you lift my head to see your strong arm reaches to me your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole 
song to sing, a grateful song to sing. 